the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without hope. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we're sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, which will just be Taylor and I, I just wanted to throw out, we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck there. If not, perhaps leave us a nice review on iTunes. And if you say, explain the Luz to me or else on your review, we will give you a shout out on the following week's episode. To that end, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Ark underscore Keeper for uh, giving us a nice five-star review and uh, giving us the fear is the mind killer review. Did anyone leave a uh, explain Deleuze to me right now? Not yet, no. Do You did that on the Gill episode. Yeah, interesting. I'm That's surprised. fine. I mean, it's, it's kind of a silly thing to request. Not as cool yeah. as fear is the mind killer and all that. <laughs> no, it's a, I think it's a brilliant idea. It's actually really good i'm just surprised i think that it's a, it's a strange thing to leave this feedback right I mean, <laughs> I mean some of the ones i mean the ones i've said are totally banger episode or banger yeah. B- banger show yeah yeah well the anti-oedipus episode didn't get as much play like it certainly you know it just cracked a thousand plays i think today but it was one of our slower i think you know how it is with the series they the series to- episodes yeah it's usually the bookends that do well yeah and uh I get it because you may not want to necessarily jump in the middle, right. even, though you, even though you perfectly, you, you, you can do oh, that. for sure. Right. Yeah. I think you could still get plenty out of what we're doing because we're just, you know, we're not just focusing on that week's content per se in an isolation. Like we're drawing, we're yeah. drawing back to prior episodes. We're drawing back to other discussions, even within the same series and so forth. And like our body of work overall you know, at least that's like kind of the value I'm bring a lot is just to highlight those connections and disjunctions with yeah. content we've discussed in the past. Yeah. And we've, we've had a, we've had a pretty, uh, I mean, since I've joined what I, I guess I joined around this time last year. Yeah. I want to um, say it was something like March of 2021. Yeah. Since, since I think I've... the last one of the uh, last one or two of the wicked Leotar episodes we had firmly ensconced you as the uh as the co-host yeah i you know and um got an official t-shirt and everything <laughs> we've done a lot since joining we finished the libidinal economy series even before i joined we've kind of done read-throughs of what i guess this is our oh, yeah. fourth book now you know if you consider machine air unconscious part one right we didn't, we didn't do the proust chapters but that's okay there's those series. There's the the libidinal economy, symbolic exchange and death, and now we're finishing up with anti Oedipus. We kind of did it in a in a 
in a different order, right? It's it's kind of interesting to yeah. come back to the the kind of foundational, right? Let's just say the post sixty eight libidinal economics trio that we've talked about. Anti Oedipus really dislodges white, right? Like it's it's creating a little a little tear or a break, yeah, right? a break point. Yeah, they use their I, own terminology, right? To kind of like a disjunction or something. There's this idea in um, in Anglophone kind of Deleuze continental philosophy that a thousand plateaus is kind of like the the go to text. But in right. a certain sense, on the French side, Anti Oedipus was more immediately impactful. Yeah, even if a thousand plateaus is more creative and really kind of shows their mature philosophy and shows their creativity in a way that anti-Oedipus doesn't, at least in terms of its in writing style. Anti-Oedipus had a huge impact and was wildly successful insofar as we go by, you know, book selling. But I remember my, um, my uh, philosophy professor who spent a week at Vincennes where, uh, yeah, you know, Deleuze taught, right? Yeah, Paris 8 or whatever, which was formed after May 68 and had a lot of the, the um, let's just say, the quote-unquote radical professors like Badu, Lyotard, I think, and Deleuze, obviously. He said he spent a week in Vincennes and everybody, this was in 78, so this is six years after its publication. And he said that the book everyone was talking about was Andy Oedipus. That alone kind of, that kind of staying power yeah. First of all, it's a long fucking book and you need to read it a few times, at least in my opinion, you need to read it over and over again yeah. to really um, start to process it. So it makes sense that the the time to consume it gave it some more longevity and that it was still popular and still kind of redefining what what philosophy could do. Because in a certain sense, Anti-Oedipus isn't even a, it's not primarily a book of philosophy, right? I mean, it's, it yeah. is kind of, uh, you know, it's got that Guattrian mili- militant uh, manifesto against Oedipus. It's interdisciplinary, as, as you would want to say. I think that also Leotard's libidinal economy and uh, Baudrillard's symbolic exchange of death probably helped to give it more cachet and more life, too, insofar as maybe it's not immediately apparent, but it it seems, at least from today, it may not seem immediately apparent that they're reacting to anti-Oedipus. I think within the French intellectual milieu, it kind of may have been self-evident. It's kind of interesting too. You know, I was thinking about this relative to our, uh, you know, we planned on talk or plan on talking to Thomas Nail about Marx in motion and um, shit. <laughs> Lost my train of thought actually. Oh, were you going to ask maybe about like Marx's dissertation and this kind of uh, no, you know, no, no, materialism not even, flows? Not even that. Um, I okay. think it's, just thinking about how, for me, I sort of have isolated Marx. For some reason, I at least habitually haven't thought of Marx as a philosopher in the way that I think of other thinkers, yeah. like yeah. Deleuze, Deleuze, for example, or yeah. Aristotle, Hegel, right? Like, I don't know why that is, but Marx seems a little bit different. Like, he's his own sort of thing, and that's probably just the legacy of of Marxism itself. And, yeah. you know, obviously, yeah. the Cold War propaganda sure etc right but i think marx too like at least in capital is doing something that is more akin to like a social scientific 
approach, kind of. Yeah, loosely least, speaking. Yeah. You know, because at this time, I think the human sciences, particularly right, sociology is just kind of like beginning to perhaps emerge right around this time. It's yeah, I think if, like if you August Comp is typically considered the first sociologist. And now I think by name, by name, century, yeah. yeah, by name, you know, and uses the term, maybe even coins it, if I remember correctly. And but you're right. I mean, in terms of it's really the 19th century with a lot of these German thinkers towards the middle and end of the, the 19th century that you have, you know, like someone like that you're uh, fond of, like uh, Durkheim, right. you know, just to name him and um yeah so it looks like just to back up on comp he was born 1798 dies 1857 and what year did so marx published his dissertation in what 1841 1841 the kind of bridges into the, the bridge is, is between the young and like the sort of more critical marks. So is, would you, does it, is it's a, not... <clears throat> the thesis on Fourier Bach. Right. Okay. Which is uh, something that, mm-hmm. okay. So I think Sterner published unique in its property in 1844. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's a big year banner year for philosophy. Indeed. And I don't know how much this plays into it, but I know that from reading that Engels in particular read the unique in its property and went to just Marx and was like, Hey, we got to the influence of, of that book on Marx in particular, even if it's in opposition sort of to a lot of what Sterner's doing. Yeah. I mean, cause at the time when, when Marx and Engels start to, to start to write together with like uh, the Holy family, a lot of what they're critiquing is, uh, some of these Hegelians, the neo-Hegelians, right? The Bruno Bauer is is one right. that that features prominently, even though we don't read him today. There's there's this huge polemic going on, but a lot of it is this kind of uh, kind of a bastardization of of Hegel, right? And um, you know, obviously Feuerbach, as I just mentioned with the thesis on Feuerbach, you know, there's a sense in which Feuerbach is probably you could you could categorize him similar to Stirner, even though they have different takes or whatever. But they 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 at least show a a path towards a more materialist Hegel. And I think that Marx finds a lot of inspiration from Feuerbach. And it makes sense that Stirner would be, be on that list too, as maybe a more appropriate, more interesting, more, I don't want to say radical, but, but just less conservative, less also less stultifying, less philosophically idealist way of doing philosophy in Germany at the time. Right. And yeah. Sterner definitely goes in on, I think, Feuerbach in particular as this, like this humanist critique or the critique of yes. this humanist, whatever approach. And Marx, Marx kind of does some of the same things. I mean, it would be interesting to, to think about more closely the, uh, the influence that Sterner may have had. And that could be something for a future episode where we, I'm sure there's literature on it. Yeah, I forget um, where I read that. It, it may have been. You're not talking about the ego and its hyperstate. Oh, no, I'm talking about Jacob Blum- Blumenfeld's All Things oh. Were Nothing to Me. I want to say perhaps oh, that's, okay, where, okay. that's where I may have encountered that idea or that suggestion. Just to go back to your point, which I think is actually a good one. I agree with you about not always seeing, thinking of Marx as a philosopher. 
And I think that's one of the credits of Thomas Nail's book is to show that, you know, in fact, it's not this strange swerve right. to, to fun <laughs> that we have Marx doing his dissertation on ancient materialism. And then suddenly he's like, he's like, oh, well, I'm gonna scrap that. This has nothing to do with my future projects. I think showing the kind of holistic view that, in fact, it may have been his interest in ancient materialism, yeah. Lucretius and Ep Epicurus, that helped to inform spoiler alert this is kind of one of the theses of the book but it helps helps to inform up to the later writings on um of capital and i think that that what's interesting about thomas's book and again spoiler alert, but we'll try not to dwell too long on this is that as i told you i kind of want to go back and re read libidinal economy and the chapter on oh yeah the old the man. young the young girl marks and the old old man critical marks because i think that as i kind of said with the altice episode that that might that could be something challenged by thomas nails rereading yeah. of capital yeah. through the lens of the dissertation maybe that's a good follow-up episode to do and just say fuck it we're just gonna redo and just focus on that chapter yeah I mean, we spent two episodes on that chapter but you know that's one of the but this is this will be interesting, I think, post me reading Anti-Oedipus. Oh, yeah. It really yeah, yeah. is going to just enliven that so much more, I think, for the discussion. Yeah, but, you know, this, this is a question about Marx as a philosophy. You're totally right about the history of Marxism. And so he's immediately a political thinker. This history of sociology, because sociology kind of right. claims him, too, as a, yeah. as a thinker of social formations. Obviously, economists have to take him seriously. So he's got... He's got interest from a more hard science aspect, you know, and then critiques of ideology, which kind of spans the humanities in a certain right. sense, you know. So I think in that sense, right, he, he is a philosopher and more than a philosopher, which ideally the best philosophers are. They aren't necessarily just pigeonholed in the history of philosophy, which is why I think someone like Deleuze was what you're bringing up. You know, there was this sense in which, you know, if he had ended with different repetition, he would be a great thinker and a great philosopher, but he would not have had a large impact outside of that, I don't think. So for those who, who like Zizek and Badu, who kind of think that uh, Guattari's cooperation with him and collaboration kind of ruined Deleuze and, and sullied him, I think that that's a one-sided view and that's a view from within the right. philosophical canon. And I, I think one I that is, with. yeah, no. And I think one that is like a lot more, you know, right. There's like, there's a certain um, deference to Hegel. Yeah, sure. Sure. And um, perhaps like a bias towards Hegel that clouds a little bit of the analysis on Deleuze and Guattari's work together. And the critique of Hegel doesn't really uh, feature much in their collaboration. You know, oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. You know, it's not as though Deleuze was always kind of had a fetish and it had to polemicize against Hegel. You know, there's a sense in which, you know, when he when he does criticize Hegel, it isn't in this sense of like having a beef. And because like someone like Badu, who I love to read, he could be very polemical and very biting and very also use logical straw men and things like this. But Deleuze doesn't really do that. I think that that you know, he, he he even talks about this where he's like, he says something, I think it's in the letter to a harsh critic, which is the famous essay where he kind of writes about 
people cringing at his long fingernails, which if you look at some of the pictures of Deleuze and, and he's got some long ones, but uh, he kind of says something about how he hopes that anything he ever wrote about another philosopher, it never made them cry or never like hurt their feelings. There is a sense in which, you know, he, which I take not to be this thing about like being sensitive or even sentimental, but more about always approaching, even when you have a difference to suss out, it's, it's in a good faith, charitable reading. There's nothing yeah. to be gained by, by necessarily trying to disfigure and dishonor the one against whom you're battling. If you dishonor your, your rival, you kind of dishonor yourself when you claim to have beaten them. And Nietzsche kind of talks about this, where you got to treat your enemies with a certain respect so that when you beat them, you you come out looking even better. If you belittle them too much, then it's like, oh, well, then, you know, you just squashed a bug. You didn't really fight a, a god with shining swords. Anyway. When Brazier said or came on and just kind of raved about Marx as a philosopher. Yeah. And that Marx was becoming such a heavy focus for him. To me, that's a little bit of what drove why I wanted to look at Marx in motion specifically with, with Nail. Yeah. Just to yeah, tap yeah. on that briefly. I don't know. I feel like I am. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's hard to escape this <laughs> Hegelian dialectic or like even the, I don't know, the dialectical stuff. I feel like it does. It's an elegant way to think, you know, and it does kind of map on to like some of these ideas that I've been having relative to like, you know, when I was describing, you know, Freud's unconscious as a balloon and you kind of press one part of the balloon, well, that, you know, is going to displace energy or whatever elsewhere, right? That in a sense is kind of like a Hegelian idea, at least maybe crudely, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. 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 I, mean, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. And I'm thinking I, I, of, also thinking about this in terms of the world being constructed in particular, right? It's like whenever the idea hits matter, you know, that's when it's not even that simple, right? It's because ideas have material force as well. Yeah, Deleuze and Guattari and the Thousand Plateaus say that ideas are bodies too. And I think that that would go well with Marx, with Epicurus, with this kind of materialism where, you know, nature, insofar as the idea exists, it's nature like thinking itself, right? right. It's, it's nature's way of uh, even think about this practic- on itself. Yeah. Think about this practically like, okay, I'm a human being. I'm walking. I'm trying to survive in mother nature, you know. I've got to do something. I've got to have an idea and then I've got to implement that idea and see what happens and see what the outcome is. And if I can repeat that outcome again and again and achieve the same or a relatively similar result, right? Yeah. So in that sense, like this kind of dialectical movement of is predicated on the negative, on failure. Like, I don't know, man, that's a pretty convincing, I guess, paradigm for, for motion or for like human development or you know what i'm saying there's something yeah. i've been thinking about a lot and like even just thinking of myself i've never thought of myself as a marxist or even like felt the attraction to consider myself a marxist but i think i mean anti-oedipus is definitely impacting that enemy as well right a kind of marxism that Deleuze and guattari advocate in that book right yeah is something that i can sort of vibe with a little and bit re- better Remember that Marx himself said that, you know, kind of seeing the impact of his works and 
the way in which his works are described and reflecting on it and saying, well, if that's what it means to be a Marxist, then I'm I'm not a Marxist, right? So there is there is this kind of and he and obviously he was saying that with a little bit of irony and and humor, kind of like when Foucault says maybe the century will be known as Delizian, right? Like there is a little bit of irony and Marx is a funny fucking guy. He's he's pretty uh he's he's pretty good. It doesn't come out as much in the dissertation, but definitely you see it in Capital and and in Grunrisa and in the Holy Family. That shit is fucking hilarious because he's he's pretty brutal against these neo-hegelians but yeah uh, well even in um what is it the german ideology i think he he calls sterner like sancho or something weird like that like sancho panza from I, um, i'm guessing perhaps yeah i don't know what yeah from Don Quixote. i've actually never read any primary marks other than the dissertation and like bits and you know excerpts of you know i think for like the grandrisa you know i'm sure i've read a million capital citations of capital but i've never directly picked up capital to look at it because I don't know. I don't like to, when you're getting into the minutia of shit, I just, that's where I kind of lose interest. I like these bigger concepts. I like these very, like kind of like, I like to think in, in an ontological space, I think. Well, I mean, at that sort of level. Yeah. I mean, it kind of excites me theoretically speaking. Marx is definitely, as we've seen, he's definitely an ontological thinker. He's thinking about, uh, it's not just epistemology in a certain sense. There is a, sort of ontology of motion as, as nail has pointed out but yeah I, I get what you're saying i used to read capital i had a job where i could work and uh basically if there were no customers if there were no interactions i could just pretty much do whatever i wanted instead of watching youtube videos i would i would read capital and um i do think that what's nice about it is you can get lulled into as you said the minutia and then he'll hit you with stuff about the you know, history of primitive accumulation is written in letters of blood and fire. There is some stuff, and Nail quotes a lot of of the bangers. You know, um, it is dry reading, and at the same time, you know, it's it's still necessary for our time. Yeah, uh, to to grapple with, and I think that that anti Oedipus too helps. Oh, for sure, has helped me to uh, to get a kind of a renewed sense of the impact of Marx's philosophy and what Guattari calls the revolutionary machine, right? Because when you're trying to use Nietzsche as a way of of synthesizing Marx and Freud, this notion that the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine and the art machine are all sort of are all sort of moving in motion together and interacting. I think that that's that's something that Guattari never never lost sight of. And I would say the too, but but Guattari specifically, this militant, you know, institutional analysis and being a part of experimental, you know, institutions like Laborde. We got into some of this with Gary Janosko. You know, that that gives, I think, Guattari's theoretical and practical writings a little bit more cachet just inherently than, right. than Deleuze's. Not that it's a competition. I'm just kind of saying. Yeah, because there's a clear, there's a, it's a clear praxis, right? It's a clear practice. Although, you know, theory is a practice in itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It has practical effects. And Deleuze's, uh, you know, pedagogy, a lot of this comes out in his, in his seminars, you know, he's, he's working with, you know, trying to uh, re like just the way he thinks about the goal of thinking is insofar as it is learning and not knowledge. It's not this absolute knowledge kind of like in Hegel where it's disinterested and it's and it's sort of uh, unconnected. Learning is something that's that's a practical activity. 
you know, it can be an end in itself insofar as it applies back to, back to practice. But um, Deleuze and his solo work, I mean, Lucretius Wright is one of the more influential, these other like sort of not bastard, I don't want to say bastard thinkers, but I forget the phrasing you used. It's like these kind of other, these minor minor line, the the minor minor line, line, right. Right. Of Deleuze's thinking. Right. Lucretius is part of that. Well, that he draws from, correct? It's interesting because he doesn't write a ton about him, but what he does write is is very provocative. He has a uh, he has this essay, the first appendix of Logic of Sense, which is about Plato and the simulacrum, and then the second half of that essay is about Epicurus and Lucretius, and kind of using Lucretius as a way of thinking the simulacrum in a positive vain because obviously for plato the simulacra is kind of is degraded there's this hierarchy of being they also bring up lucretius in a thousand plateaus where you know deleuze has this he says quite specifically that it's an error to think that epicurus and lucretius are thinking the atom as a discrete entity you have to think of it as flows if you don't think of it that way then you're reading it wrong and Thomas Nail uh, points that out in his introduction to um, volume one of his Lucretius series. When we have him on, just anticipating, I would like to ask him about his, he finds inspiration in this, but he also critiques uh, Deleuze's idealism, right? Because for, for Deleuze, the atom is that which, which must be thought and can only be thought, right? And it, it's in this dialectic of thinking and being, because he's a philosopher, but there's an idealist kernel that that Nail is is trying to get away from. But the other guy that in continental French philosophy that helped to revive Lucretius is Michel Serre. He wrote this, and they I think they quoted, I think they they cited in A Thousand Plateaus, I believe, but he writes this book about, I forget how it's translated, but is it is basically about fluid hydraulics. I think it's called the birth nice. of physics. I think it's called the birth of physics. That's super interesting, man. Because I think, you know, that'd be a great my- book to do. Thermodynamics really does, I think, at the end of the day, like that's like the basis, right? It's flows of fucking energy, flows of energy well, and matter or whatever, and matter is energy. So really, at the end of the day, we're talking flows of, of energy. I think the problem with uh, classical thermodynamics, though, is that it still tries to think discreetly, right? And uh, with the birth of physics, which is what it's called, where he focuses on Lucretius, he is talking more about fluid dynamics than classical thermodynamics, which is, again, you know, that would be the only downfall of it. It's still trying to think particulately, right? Yes. So to speak. Now, Lucretius himself was a was a poet, correct? He was not a thinker direct, or how did, was he also a philosopher? I think that I think that the, the point is, if you think about like Parmenides, Parmenides mm-hmm. is a philosopher, but he writes this great poem about yeah. the one. So the fact that Lucretius took a poetic form and even begins with like invocation of Venus and singing this kind of song in praise of Venus, you can't call him just a poet primarily and then a philosopher. Like the two are not uh, necessarily distinct. Well, even at the time, there's probably less the writing machine or whatever that is probably, you know, there's more uh, continuity between them than as time progresses, right? They're sort of like, these things begin to diverge all the different human sciences, whether it be language arts, right? Would be poetry. Yeah. Because if you think about it, poetry or it is a science, right? That this is one of the good things that Guattari does is recognize sort of the scientific or the, you know, we'll use scientific in a sort of broader scope, I think, here. But when the, he's talking the science about science of well, 
literature. I was going to say the science of representation, but that is obviously not, you know, but I think that I, I don't know else to. You're talking about when he, he describes Proust as uh, having yes, as yes, much yes, yes. scientific Correct. value. Yeah, because right. he's, he says Proust um, in search of lost time is a, is a schizoanalytic, you know, monograph. It has Correct. as much. He bemoans the fact that that science and literature are are normally thought right. of as having nothing discrete to do with as discrete instead of yeah as discrete instead right. of these full these flows that sort of like these curve folds, back yeah, upon the, one another. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. I mean, the poem form in form he's a poet, but that doesn't mean he's not a thinker. He's true, directly true. trying to think. It's almost like the poem is a is a vehicle, so to speak. I completely understand that because I try to think about shit narratively. Like that's how, that's why I'm Mm -hmm, always mm -hmm. going to popular culture because it can really crystallize these ideas in a way that you can, when you see the ideas in motion, it's easier to to understand, I think, rather than the sort of abstraction. Have you seen Nightcrawler? Is that the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal where he's chases the, I guess, incidents? Yeah, he's like, like a police scanner. Yeah, he's a total. He's like an independent contractor and he's trying to basically film the most kind of violent, sensational news, so to speak, car crashes. But also at the end, it's this it's this kind of triple homicide burglary. I watched that the other night and I was kind of thinking about primitive accumulation because he hires this intern that he doesn't really pay for a few weeks to help him get this footage. And at the end of the film, right before the sort of climax, he agrees to kind of pay him a salary, basically like a percentage of their their worth. And um, his intern, now colleague, who I believe is Arabic or, or Indian, he gets caught up in this car chase and dies at the end. And, you know, you see Jake Gyllenhaal's character, like, you think he's going to, like, lean down and, and mourn the guy, but he just, like, he just kind of with blank face leans down, picks up his camera and like walks off. And at the end of the film, he has three new interns, you know, and he's kind of given his speech about going out and hustling and all this shit. And I was thinking about how his, he kind of raises himself on his own, on his own bootstraps by sacrificing the labor, the, the devalorized labor of, of these others. And it made it very like crystallized. Uh, there's other, interesting things about it too like when he's selling the footage and there's this kind of pornographic moment where he's literally kind of like getting off on these horrific incidents that he's selling the spectacle of which would be another book to look at and since we were talking about hegel earlier which is a uh, guide Boer's society of the spectacle because he kind of plays with with hegelian formulations and i think it's still relevant for today obviously we're still living in you know, Baudrillard makes that clear, right? We're still right. kind of living in this in this era of the spectacle. I mean, there's a ton of overlap with the sort of at least broad strokes of the books, Society of the Spectacle, and I guess Simulacra and Simulation broadly. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, like I said, or I can't remember if I've said this, but I'll say it again, that Baudrillard was a situationist. Yeah, that was something that was surprising to me and that I didn't know. But thinking about it, it seems very logical. I should have known that, but I just... Um, Obviously, Guy Debord is, is more famous for kind of almost standing in for the the whole movement right? to, to a certain extent. Yeah, I read an interesting book uh, Mackenzie Wark wrote about. It's The Beach Beneath the Street, about some of the seminal figures within situationism. That's awesome. It's kind of interesting, yeah. 
there were some people mentioned or referenced that kind of reminded me a little bit of kind of some of the stuff that Deleuze and Guattari get into, but I don't remember specifically what that was. I just want to go back quickly, actually, to, so I was asking about Epicurus and Deleuze and Lucretius, because like I said, in our discussion of the dissertation, I felt like what Epicurus is doing is this very archaic form of an empiricism, right? Which eventually, you know, Deleuze comes up with his transcendental empiricism. And so drawing that sort of line, that little thread from Epicurus to to Deleuze is something I wanted to mention briefly, I guess. And I'm sure you could probably I would say quickly, you know, interesting direction. Lucretius praises Epicurus for being one of the first thinkers to kind of stand up against the oppressive weight of religion Mm -hmm. and to sort of argue for its, like we said last time, uh, the gods, if they, you know, the the gods exist, but they exist between worlds and they're perfectly sufficient unto themselves. They have no cares about intervening in our world. And I think that that's, that's, a huge step forward from treating them like, you know, in Homer's Iliad is like directly involved in the, in the trials and tribulations and, and, and struggles between peoples. What's interesting about transcendental empiricism is the way that I understand it is kind of involved with, well, first of all, in a, it, it kind of shows this negotiation with Kant, like we talked about with Daniel Smith, because transcendental empiricism in a certain sense is a contradiction in terms for a purely Kantian understanding, right? You know, transcendental philosophy is is not itself concerned with the empirical because it's about the synthetic a priori, which I think for an, empir- an empiricism purely in a, in a negative sense would not allow. Right. Kant says this is other type of knowledge and how it's possible and how it can, and he builds this whole architectonic on it. With Deleuze, so so first of all, transcendental empiricism is kind of a provocative term, but the way I understand it is is as a sort of method or movement, theoretical practice of critiquing dominant images of thought, critiquing images of thought, and pushing thought to think itself without image. And in that sense, I think Epicurus is a forefather of that method, right? Which you can't really think of a much bigger dominant image of thought than the oppression of religious superstition and opinion, if that makes sense. It's kind of interesting. Um, I was just thinking, because I had read and covered this article by Saul Newman, Empiricism, Pluralism, and Politics in Deleuze and Stirner. And I think that was my first... I guess the first time I encountered this concept of transcendental empiricism, mm-hmm. because Newman just kind of like, basically he kind of just references that in brief. He doesn't really go a great deal into the actual, you know, I guess stakes of what transcend transcendental empiricism is mm-hmm. that much, but it's been a while. It's a term that survives because it is provocative, but it's not necessarily something that Deleuze himself dwelled on. Right. I mean, it comes up in difference of repetition and is given pride of place, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's, it's just kind of a, a name for what he's doing when he's critiquing the dominant image of thought, which for him involves subordinating difference to identity and not truly thinking a concept of, of difference that would be, you know, for itself. Always yoking difference to this thinking, so an identitarian thinking, resemblance, opposition, contradiction. 
right? So obviously this involves critiquing some moves of Hegel, but obviously also Plato, Aristotle, you know, the in a certain sense, trying to reread the history of thought in a way that overturns some of the dominant moves and tropes in the history of philosophy. And I think that that's part of, so we can call it whatever you want. It's an interesting name and it, and it sticks with you. It's kind of like um, when they are describing schizoanalysis as a materialist psychiatry. Yeah. You know, there, there's a sense in which it, it, it kind of perks your ears up and it's like, you know, there's a sense in which they're like returning to Freud means returning to this materialism and Freud in the early stages, you know, he's like in his unpublished, it's the 1895, the project for a scientific psychology. He abandons it, but in a certain sense, a lot of like the serious Freud scholars, and I think they even cited a few times in um, Anti-Oedipus, if I'm, if I'm not misremembering, but it, but it very much is based on, it is an atomism to a certain extent, but it's trying to think like how neurons can kind of form these networks and you can kind of assert an atomistic materialist modeling of how memories form, how traumas form, how, you know, affect is charged and discharged. All of this kind of stuff is latent in the in the project. And it's very it's very cool reading. It, it's it's kind of difficult, but it makes sense if you have a lot of knowledge of Freud. But that, I think it's like that kind of Freud that they want to go back to this this kind of explorer that they talk about instead of the the Al Capone gangster Freud who's trying to like set up a racket or the sort of idealist stuff that Lacan at least begins his career with the structure yeah. the vaguely structuralist approach yeah the flirtations with structuralism can you talk about affect with me a little bit because i know like affect has been something that's been mentioned on this podcast like a thousand times and yeah i've never really gotten exactly what is meant by affect exactly before i start talking about it generally <laughs> because i i do have a lot to say about it for example we've talked about repression disavowal and foreclosure these are like kind of three terms for for ways of dealing with you can call them pathological ways of dealing with phenomena with the mental apparatus the psychical apparatus right so repression would bear mainly on the affect the kind of quotum the, the quota of energy associated with an idea disavowal would focus on the idea itself like he uses this very much in the sense of castration where disavow you disavow the mother not having a penis because if she does not have a penis that means she was castrated by the father and if she could be castrated by the father then then you, th then you can be castrated as well so you know very well that she is castrated or does not have a penis and yet you maintain the idea that she does, and that's how the fetish arises as a substitute for the mother's lost yet still not lost, but not lost penis. But um, and then uh, of course, um, foreclosure is the basis of psychosis, right? A piece of reality is is sort of cut out. Just to simplify, I mean, it's it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I guess I had always considered this as like in terms of affectation, like taking on a a sort of false or you know what I mean? Sort of. It's etymologically related, but it's not. It's not. It's the not the same. Okay, no. Gotcha. I probably have told you this before, but a great, a great little book is, and not a little book. It's like five hundred pages, and I actually have the physical copy right next to me, so I should look at that. The language of psychoanalysis, 
Oh yeah, Laplanche, together yeah. by by La, Laplanche and Pontalis. Laplanche studied with well, they both studied with Lacan, and Laplanche himself is a very good thinker. So affect and the general definition says term borrowed term borrowed by psychoanalysis from German psychological usage. It connotes any affective state, whether painful or pleasant, whether vague or well-defined, and whether it is manifested in the form of a massive discharge or in the form of a general mood. According to Freud, each drive expresses itself in terms of affect and in terms of ideas, which I kind of talked about just a second ago, right? The affect is the qualitative expression of the quantity of instinctual energy, drive energy, and of its fluctuations, right? So the affect is, in this sense, represents the quota of energy. I talked about it just a second ago as a quota of, a quotum, a quota of energy. It is not itself the quantity, right? It's, it's kind of the... The residue? Oh, no. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the quality that, that a quantum or, or quota of energy, it represents that, that quota of energy. This is why it could be a discharge or a mood. So it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, like this is this is why a concept like abreaction. Remember when I brought this up with the Bojio yeah, episode yeah, yeah. on terrorism? Abreaction is this venting, this this letting go of this discharge of an emotional. We call it emotional energy, an effective energy. Abreaction is related to this change in the quantity of affect, right? That makes sense, and this is why for Freud. You know, it's important to distinguish between repression, which bears on affects and tries to keep that the feelings at bay mm -hmm. versus disavow, which which tries to push back against an idea. That's very nuanced. I think it's interesting because for Freud, abreaction basically means that there's this discharge of energy that doesn't necessarily have to be related to a uh, linking up and associating of ideas. It can be related to it, but it can be more or less spontaneous. And so it, it is interesting to, to think about how if it were as easy as kind of, if mourning were like as easy as crying, because we've talked about mourning on the show before. And, you know, I've said how I deal with it with kind of crude jokes, but if, if mourning were as easy as crying, and that were enough, right, to just discharging and venting the energy, sure, that can help. But it doesn't necessarily fix the quote-unquote problem, right? It doesn't necessarily fix your symptom if the idea associated with that affect is still left in place and not linked up associatively in a way that allows it to lose some of its control and power over us. Yeah, so that's way different. And <laughs> I guess that's why I was struggling because it was like a total, I was thinking affectation or like some type of appearance or set of behaviors or something like that. But I get, I mean, which I guess it sort of is, but it's, it's more complicated than that. It's, yeah. Affectation implies though a, at least semi-conscious right. sort of putting on of a mask or, or deception Whereas affect would be largely unconscious, although we can become aware of our mood, right, with a kind of reflection. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's interesting to think about the uh, sort of energy associated with, with the affect, what the affect represents, right? The, the kind of flows of, of um, emotional or psychical energy that can kind of pull up into these general moods as, as it's translated here. 
But this is a good question. I, I think this is a good question. It's I remember one of my professors when asked this question about affect, and it was in relation to, to Nietzsche, who also uses the term as as the definition just stated, it's kind of borrowed from German psychology, and Nietzsche wasn't unaware of yeah. some of the trends in German psychology, but he tried to describe it as the backfire from a tailpipe. He's trying to use this like interesting, um, he's trying to use this interesting kind of metaphor, a kind of mechanistic metaphor. And I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I don't think it captures what the affect is in the backfire because the backfire would be a kind of, would more better describe abreaction as a venting of affect rather than affect itself. That's just one of the transformations and fluctuations of, of affect. It's not itself the affect. But it's, it's kind of a, a, an interesting metaphor because it would be kind of like your balloon metaphor, right? Except in the, the balloon would, would pop or, or you would release some of the air right out of the, out of the balloon. That is one thing that I don't like about Hegel is I feel like in Hegel, the balloon is, like you said, there's no ability for there to be like a, a like there's not a, a release valve on the on the absolute or whatever yeah hegel's are are these concentric spirals right it's kind of like monolithic whereas with marx's dialectic as althusser helpfully points out it's never simple there's never any one contradiction there's a dominant but there's also subordinate contradictions within a same complex and this is why he uses this term over determination which is also a uh, as i mentioned it's it not only comes from linguistics but it comes from psychoanalysis as well uh, let's see the see this is something i this yeah, is something ahead. i something i thought Deleuze and guattari like i feel like their approach sort of has like the body without organs is kind of an similar not like an absolute per se but you, you know what i mean like this totality this kind of totality or well maybe not totality like this this partiality right like if we're saying the body of capitalism or whatever right like that's not the entire you know, body of the universe per se, right? That's a more localized or regional body without organs, right? But I, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I conceive of the way that Deleuze and Guattari look at this as they're almost being this, like, yeah, there's this kind of totality, but it has a valve to let things escape. They talk about in terms of attraction and repulsion, right? That the the machines kind of, a, you know, attract to the to the full body, but the full body also, you know, releases this undifferentiated fluid that tries to, to, to repel them off. And also, you know, it's interesting to think about the full body without organs in the different social formations that it's associated with, right? The full body of the earth for primitive territorial machines, the full body of the despot for imperial despotic machines, mm-hmm. the full body of capital, as you just mentioned, for capitalist machines. And, you know, uh, Thomas Nail was helpful in Marx in Motion to show that with the three simultaneous moments of primitive accumulation, which is devalorization, appropriation, and domination, it's domination that kind of turns back against the whole process of value production and acts as though it were the source of the process rather than merely a part of it. And this is how he goes into very helpfully describing how fetishism work, right? The the relations between producers and this kind of, you know, optical illusion, so to speak, the fetish of the product, it's now these relations between products and the exchange value. And it's that kind of redirecting as though the product itself were the 
sort of origin of the process. I think that's that's how the full body has to be understood, right? It's the the body of the full body of the earth falls back on production in this apparent objective movement, to use Marx's term, where it seems as though the earth is the source of all these all these syntheses of connection, disjunction, whatever. Same with capital. Capital I mean, Gill said it really nicely with the despot. The despot, you know, overcodes and aligns the filiations under himself and, and in this kind of transcendent godlike way is attributed the movement of production as though he were the source of all values and all in all events. But he's just sitting on his fucking throne being an unproductive piece of shit. Like the eventuality of Rob, Robinson Crusoe, right? Yeah, the Robinson Crusoe as you kind of put it, you said something about like instituting these rules for consumption and sort of he kind of builds this colonial machine on the island that eventually runs itself. Doesn't even have to be there to threaten. It's a good way of showing how oppression, repression, social and psychical is internalized. And we, right. we desire our own oppression. It, and I think that that's why Marx is critical of political economists who begin with Robinson Crusoe, not just because the story unfolds in this horrifying way, but also just beginning with the individual, the self-sufficient individual. Right. It's Simon Doan's critique of uh, hylomorphism and, and theories of individuation. You can't start with the individual and then move back to the process by which the individual is created. That doesn't work. Right? You have to think the conditions of the individual you have to start with that. And that's the difficult part. And he even claims ontology can't do that to a certain extent because ontology thinks terms, thinks discreetly. You have to think ontogenesis, but thought is individuated. So you, you have to think ontogenesis through the individuation of thought. You have to think the individuation of things through the individuation of thought. Not, not through thought itself. And I think that that's where <laughs> Simon Don and Deleuze start to look interesting because with critiquing the dominant image of thought, you know, Deleuze is saying we can't have the conditions of possibility of thought. We have to think the real conditions of the genesis of thought within thinking, this violence that causes thinking with an encounter. And if we don't think those conditions of the real genesis of thought, then to kind of say like Heidegger, we are not yet thinking. Yeah, I kind of lose it when you get get into this stuff. This is where the trail goes cold for me a little bit. I'm like, uh, these two these terms are too similar. Like, I have a hard time differentiating what you're saying in my in my mind. I guess maybe because I think in images, in a sense, like we all fall back on it, and that's the difficulty in trying to. I mean, maybe that's part of the very images, right? That's the process you're like almost sort of getting at ultimately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. And what you're explaining to me is kind of like. That's interesting. I was trying to talk about this the other day on a Discord server where I was talking about desire. And we were talking about this a little bit with partial objects and impartial objects. Yeah, because I was saying something about the partial objects are, what are they partial to? Is it like a set of behaviors? Is it a types of functions? Like what are exactly that? What does that get at? We'll actually get to that very quickly when we start getting to chapter four of Anti-Oedipus, right? Nice. Where there is this shift from part objects, right? Part whole objects to partial objects, like they're biased. And this becomes this question of investment 
of unconscious investment, this becomes this question of, you know, bias and making selections. I'll explain what, what I think. My anus is partial to shitting, but mm -hmm. my anus can also be partial to sexual experience, right? You know, there could be a pro, there's like whatever, the, there's, hmm. my penis is partial to pissing and coming. Breaking the flows. But it can be, have other, I guess, right? It can have other functions outside of these that it's sort of partial to just by the, I don't know, instinctual, whatever instinctual or unconscious behavior is present within the human being. Yeah, it's based on the desire to repeat, right? Or like, the you know, like we, okay, this is the way I should have described it as case, like kissing on the mouth, right? Like the mouth is partial to eating and drinking and yelling or whatever, right? But it can also be part, you know, it also has these other, a bit like kissing, right? Mm -hmm. There's a partiality, but there's other, there's like a certain openness to other experience or behavior or sensuous unfolding. I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. And this is why Freud called out. Is that kind of what this is getting at, like this partial object discussion? In chapter four, they've been using the word, the French word partiel, which is, like I said, part whole. And then they switched to calling them partio, which is being like partial, like a judge, like a biased judge. And uh, this is the shift from Klein. So part objects are not an incomplete part of a lost unity or totality, which is like a molar concept. Mm -hmm. They are biased insofar as they evaluate intensities that know no lack and are capable of selecting organs. So your usage of the kissing metaphor with the mouth or your usage of the thinking in terms of organs is correct, but it is about this evaluating intensities. And as you said, like the mouth is connected to the digestive system and yet we use it quite, it may be a... Yeah, right. It has kind of these other deterritorialized applications that it can do. And because we are sort of constantly building on knowledge, that can sort of go into a number of different infinite sort of applications or way that this can kind of manifest itself that we just perhaps haven't even gotten to yet. Like things that we can do with our mouth, right? Obviously, like tools, technology allows us to, I'm thinking about this microphone that's in front of my face, for example, that would sort of, I think, right, that's kind of an example of this as well. Yeah, and it's a prosthesis, it's a technical machine, but it's a desiring machine. They're the same thing, but on different regimes. So, yeah. you know, it's a technical machine for augmenting your voice and for allowing it to be recorded and distrib distributed. Right. I mean, that's the disjunctive synthesis, right? Yeah, um, I guess I was know, trying, what I was trying to, to say is like, my mouth organ is partial to these biological sort of necessities, right? Like these, at least these base, like breathing, et cetera, drinking, eating, like these are behaviors that I must achieve if I want to persist, right? So my organs are partial to these sort of natural or quote unquote natural. I don't know. That's not an affect, is it? Satisfying a need, like you're saying, can obviously lead to a, a quota of energy, quite literally, even when the body breaks down foods and converts them into energy. Yeah. I guess I'm uh, trying to talk lead to a mood of feeling satisfied, feeling well-fed, feeling your thirst being slaked. All of those are, and kissing too, the sexual singing, singing, right? Singing, Sing, yeah. singing is a really great example of this because singing is not necessarily right. It's something that, that evolved. It's not a given. 
You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, the, so the, the, the body, larynx the mouth, and the, and the mucous membranes of the lips. Yeah. The mouth is partial to these behaviors, but it, there are these other ways that it sort of directs psychic energy, maybe. Is that kind of the better way to? I feel like that might be a really good understanding, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, me. the mouth is <laughs> as a machine, right? It, it, it Particularly can... in this partial, you know, organs being partial to, I guess, is how what I was kind of trying to understand. When Freud is critiquing kissing, because he's trying to call out the hypocrisy of 19th century Victorian morality and saying, look, if you classify these certain activities as perverted, as perverse, first of all, you need to understand from the time you were an infant, you were polymorphously perverse and all of your erogenous zones were not like concretized into a unified ego. But also when you think about it, why is it that sodomy is considered perverse, whereas kissing is considered completely normal and completely valorized because he's like, look, the mouth is connected to the digestive system. It has these quote unquote natural biological functions. If you're kissing in order to arouse sexual desire, isn't that, isn't that kind of perverted? Right. Yeah, exactly. You're denaturing the mouth. Right. Yeah. And and, and of course he's kind of trying to use an an argument at absurdum. He's trying to call out the absurdity of these kind of moral high grounds of classifying certain sexual orientations and activities as perverse, but not kissing because that's bourgeois, you know, romantic, it's valorized. And he's trying to call them out and saying, like, he's like, look, anything that lingers on any organ besides the penis doing its reproductive function for a short yeah. amount of time in besides and out, its excretory functions and the inseminate, the inseminating functions, anything that, that is outside of that is perverted. And so right. we're all perverted. We're all perverse. This is in the 1905 Three Essays on Sexuality, and this is, this is really kind of the height of Freud's provocative, controversial, exploratory. And he yeah. didn't lose all of that, but, 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 it, but he becomes, you know, as he ages, he becomes more of a boomer or whatever we want to call it <laughs> these days, right? He becomes, he becomes cranky grandpa to a certain extent. This is where, like, Guattari and Lacan, I guess, as well, like, in concert with Machinic Awe, so like any object can fulfill that space of the object of desire, right? The object cause of desire. So just thinking about this in terms of the way that, okay, so we have these biological functions, but then, you know, desire can deterritorialize into these other fucking things like singing or, you know, even doing impressions or mimicry. I'm trying to think of even like other applications, but those are probably I mean, the best ones. I mean... It's not even a purely human thing, right? Birds do it. This is one of the reasons why Guattari is so interested in bird, bird songs and refrains and, uh, and, and bird ethology to kind of show that like these ways of marking and demarcating space and literally territorializing is not a specifically human thing. It's a part, it's a, it's a larger part of, of nature and natural processes. Which is great because that really goes into this. I feel like there's this general stream within you know quote unquote speculative realism that is what i really like about it is this attack on anthropocentrism yeah and really bringing objects into the foreground of our conception i think is an important move to really like build philosophy out a bit further if that makes sense just to go back to thomas nail who we will be rescheduling with i mean he's very clear in marks on marks in motion that he wants to attack a certain determinism reductionism anthropocentrism that 
sometimes he valorizes the earth and the and women and right like do you recall Harmon's critique of Nail? Because he, in our episode with Harmon, he specifically, he talks about Thomas Nail and like saying that everything's in motion. I feel like he had a pretty decent setup for his argumentation, it, it would, but I don't recall what it was exactly. Yeah, it, it would probably be the same kind of critique that you find in his discussion with Delanda and his you know critique of Deleuze, where you're undermining the object if you reduce it, reduce everything to flows and everything to motion. It may be even more clear in Thomas Nail's book on Lucretius how objects can be understood as forming, how kind of metastability can lead to relatively stable forms. I mean, Simon Don himself, too, I think would fall under Harmon's critique of kind of thinking too much in terms of the pre-individual, thinking too much in terms of, of the sort of resonance of flows. And I think that the theory of folding, for example, is one of the ways in which I believe Thomas Nail would uh, avoid the standard critique of undermining the object. But it would be interesting to go back. Does he bring it up in the episode or was it part yes. of Yes, no, read? he definitely, he, he absolutely does. I remember it. I just couldn't remember the specifics because I was, I almost was going to bring up in the episode mention, I was going to like find a moment to just pop in and say, Hey, we're going to, cause you had already been in correspondence with Thomas at that point. And I was like, Oh, that's cool that he, you brought him up like organically because we're going to have him on the show, you know, some time later, but back to your point, nail has also written two other books that, you know, we can probably look at maybe he's written like a billion. I, yeah. He's, he's so, he's he's so, so prolific, fucking prolific. prolific and they're all very sexy. They're all very sexy. Yeah. Two this notion of, Kino politics, right? Kino kinetic politics and kinetic Marxism. Go ahead. The two books that go to kind of what we've just been discussing, though, are he's got a theory of the earth and theory of the object that would be interesting to look at in this context. He's got a theory of the image, too. Yes, that as well. That, yeah, that one's. I was going to tell him, I was like, listen, man, you're so prolific. I'm very sad that we can only discuss like this little slice of your work because these are all like so much. I think in my wheelhouse in terms of what I'd like to discuss, you know, we have more time now to prepare for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying reading through the Lucretia stuff because I do think that that informs the reading of Marx in motion. And obviously this, this notion of, of of a kind of a Kino political analysis of the earth object, we need to ask him again for a copy of theory of the object, which I think is, I'm not sure if it's still in manuscript form and hasn't yet been published. I tried to use the link the other day and it expired. So we'll have to ask him again for for that. Maybe that could be something that you would want to read next. I guess to that end too, what are you thinking as far as, I mean, I know we discussed perhaps moving into like taking a look at the fold. I just bought process and reality yesterday. I mean, I feel like both of those works could be, interesting relative leading into that i mean it's going to be a while but you know about a month or so before you get them on but i think those would both be perhaps interesting things to look at and kind of build towards that might enliven some discussion but having not read either i'll sort of defer to your well i know you want to read the fold because you've always been interested in leibniz and we got to bit, talk, yeah we got yeah. to talk a little bit about leibniz last week so it would be cool to see Deleuze talking about Leibniz. He does talk about him in Difference of Repetition. He kind of pits off Leibniz against Hegel in terms of the infinite, right? The infinitely small, the infinitesimal, and the infinitely large. But I do think the full would be something interesting to read. And I've been told 
I don't know if this is true or not, but I've been told that Daniel Smith has a, uh, a kind of manuscript translation of it. So I'll, I'll have to reach back out to him and see if we can get a, an alternate translation if that exists. But process reality, I mean, God, it would have to be a question of if you wanted to work through the whole book and do a full read through, or maybe just do a, a small intervention into it and read you know, first 60, 70 pages or the first few chapters and try to yeah. kind of go into that. He has some really interesting concepts. He's uh, And Deleuze it does actually, I think it's the fold where Deleuze talks most about Whitehead. He became very interested in Whitehead. There's a good book by Harmon too was saying he, you know, he liked Whitehead. That's right. This is that's right. Similar, like right around the time he brings up Nail, he talks about Whitehead a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Whitehead would be this is like a good, you know, it's kind of obscure. It's relevant for you know Deleuze and Guattari. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, and it's relevant for some of these other people that we're engaging with. I would be open to doing a series on it just because like, it's one of those books that's not, you know, as well known. It's not as well known as obviously, you know, in the sphere of like anti, you know, even something like libidinal economy, which hadn't been until, you know, we did that series really hadn't been looked at by hardly anyone in terms of the kind of podcast, even like YouTube sphere, you know, there was very little because I was trying to find like somebody who, 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 had written on the book or like was still alive and had done work on it. And I just had no luck in terms of who I could find. And so that's kind of what came up with the idea just to do, you know, cute and, and young Agamben and bring you in too for the, to like fill in the other side on the anti-Oedipus stuff. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that Whitehead's still relevant, especially for, you know, for going to continue doing stuff on Deleuze. I think it's important to emphasize Whitehead's influence on at least the later Deleuze and Stephen Shaviro has a book on Deleuze, Kant, and Whitehead. I forget the title, but uh, he's he's an extremely important thinker in his own right. And uh, and I don't know. I could I could try to reach out to him. I'm not sure if he's on Twitter, but but anyway, I, I think either of those books would be good. I would want to do the fold first because it's shorter and we can sure. knock it out yeah. quickly, and right. we wouldn't have to do necessarily a series on it. Maybe two episodes at most. You know, but yeah, I, I think that that's good for filling in places where we don't have guests. I mean, you could probably tell me better as well on like, if you think I would enjoy it too. <laughs> keep that in mind as well. I think with process and reality, it might become uninteresting to do a whole series on it. And it is a big book, but it yeah. would be cool to look at some of it. And I'm yeah, just thinking, I, trying to think of what's another big series we can start with one another. Another big series we could start. I still think the one of the Wilder Reich books would be good. Yeah. I feel like that will get into the some libidinal economic stuff that I always enjoy. I think it would be cool to do the history of the notion of the individual by Simon Down. It wouldn't even be a full book, but it would be a whole kind of we could run the the whole history of philosophy in terms of this one idea, I think it's a very novel thing to do and would be able for us to cover a lot of ground that we haven't covered from the ancient to the modern and would also be a way of doing Simon Dome without having to read through the whole Ilfi di- dissertation. Which um, I which do was- still totally, I'm totally on board to do something like that. I bought a book from Frederick Jameson, The, the Ancients and the Postmoderns, that sounds kind of interesting. I feel like that may be on a similar or like 
relative to uh, kind of, you know, the I feel like the anthropological stuff, but also figures like Epicurus and Lucretius and some of those early Greek thinkers that are not Plato and so forth. Yeah, that'd be cool, especially just building off of what we've been discussing. So, yeah. And, you know, he's still alive, so we could we could uh, no harm in trying to, to reach out to him. Although I again, you know, we're, we're kind of I mean, he's almost 90 years old. And he turned me down in the past as well. But I can't. Well, I respect your attitude of going out and trying to get it done. So I will say, dear listener, thanks for tuning in <laughs> to an impromptu session between Cooper and I, between Cooper and myself. We have Daniel Tut next week with his book on the family. Continuing our Paul Grave. Collect the whole set. <laughs> yeah. Gotta, gotta catch them all. It is Paul Grave, right? Yeah. That will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.